0: Um, thanks again for the opportunity to be with you on this Sunday. Um, let me pray for us as uh, we listen for what God has to say to us today. Lord, uh, as I was driving here, it was clear you speak through the beauty of nature. And um, for a sunny day, as uh, the leaves uh, are changing may um, drop, uh, we give you thanks for the way that creation cries out in pleasure and joy at who you are. And I pray similarly, you tune our hearts so that, we, uh, so that we would hear your goodness, uh, we would respond with joy, and then we would give you pleasure as well. So Lord, speak, um, give us ears to hear, we pray, and then tune our hearts to your praise. Amen. Amen. Um, as you all know, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's a ministry with college and university students. And for many years, I used to be on campus um, working with college students more directly. My roles have changed over time. But the beginning of November was usually the period where um, it became clear to me who was going to stick with the chapter and who wouldn't. So during the first uh, weeks of the year, you'd spend all your energy um, meeting students, trying to recruit them to the fellowship. You'd be meeting non-Christians, trying to evoke their interest in spiritual things. You know, here in New York and New Jersey, I think we've seen um, well over almost 80 students come to faith already by this point of the year. We've, you know, talked to them. We've assessed what they've been going through. Um, They've made a decision to follow Jesus, and we've been doing our follow-up. But now is the time when... um, that gigantic list of students that you met over the first four or five weeks of the year would slowly get whittled down to the people who would likely uh, continue with you through the rest of the year. And in fact, um, after just a few years of working on university staff, it would be pretty clear to me, often by late October, certainly by mid-November, not only who was going to stick with us, but who was going to stick with the faith. Um, I could tell, often within weeks, of meeting them, with limited interaction. Uh, I I would see them on the quad, I think, in a year. I'm almost positive you are not going to be a follower of Jesus. And the clear signs for me of how I would know that would be um, they would always just say no whenever we'd invite them to come, right? So they'd stop showing up. At fellowship or they would never quite show up, you'd go, well, okay, if you can't come to the weekly meetings and you're busy, how you know, can we take you to church? And they'd, slowly, they'd decline that opportunity. Um, I, as a staff worker, would often try to meet with them. Hey, you know, could I meet with you? How could I help you grow in their faith? And they'd always demur, right? I'm, you know, I, I'm really not sure. I'm busy. Something else would come up. They would just blow me off week after week after week. And inevitably um, I would hear via the people that they knew usually within six to nine months later that they no longer identified as a, as a Christian. And it was such an obvious pattern that it began to break my heart even in the first week as I would begin to meet them because you could just begin to tell um, what was happening. And that's really what came to mind as I was looking at the passage uh, that we're looking at today, 1 John 2, uh, verses three through six. Let me read it again because it's so short um, and it's so clear that I think we have to wrestle with what it means for us. John writes, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, sorry, obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. What's fascinating, right, is that John says, look, do you want proof that you know God? Do you want to be sure that you know God? Do you, want, do you want to be convinced about it? Then do what he commands, is what he seems to be saying in verse 3. And the implicit, the, the assumption there, right, is if you knew him, you'd really obey him. Why? Because who is he? This God that we're talking about. If you knew him as the creator... the one who makes all things with beauty and joy and delight, complexity and harmony, then you would obey his commands, John seems to say, because you'd know these commands were designed to create your flourishing. They were designed just for you because he knows exactly what human beings are like and what they need because he made us that way. If you knew he was really Lord over all, he really was the ruler over all things, then you would obey him because we know if he is the Lord, if he's the ruler, then we are his subjects. And the appropriate and right thing for us to do if we're the subjects of the ruler is to give ourselves to their rules, right? If you knew that he was truly loving, right? If he actually is love, as John describes him so frequently, then wouldn't you give yourself to him because you'd be convinced that these rules, um, these commands, these requirements are actually an expression of love and not control. That they're actually designed because he delights in you, celebrates over you, desires you to be all of who you could be as an expression of his care for you, and you would submit to them because you want to receive love. If you knew he was holy, you'd realize that these rules are well worth following because not only will they keep us postured correctly toward God, but they'd eventuate because he's a God who's holy and just in a way that we would act so that there'd be righteousness everywhere. Not uptight righteousness that's a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts that leave us constrained and limited. But in fact, if he's holy and just, then obeying his commands would actually cause the people around us to flourish, right? Because a righteous and just God requires that we act righteously and justly toward other people. So we don't abuse them. We don't take advantage of them. We don't slander them. We don't steal from them. But instead, we give generously. We offer ourselves to the world for its flourishing. We care and serve other people. Right? If we knew God, John says, you'd obey him. Because if he was anything less than the creator and Lord, holy, loving, and just, he really wouldn't be worth following. Right? Because if he was a capricious God, if he was a God you couldn't depend on, he was a God who might be good some of the time, but other times he was just a little cranky. His rules, really, you'd kind of avoid, right? If you thought, he isn't really smart, this God, you begin to question whether you should follow him. If he weren't holy or just, you'd think, well, he may say to do this, but I should really evaluate to make sure that it's a good thing to do, because, you know, you know with that God, eh." right? If he wasn't really loving, if he was kind of just spiteful or mean-spirited, we'd feel pretty justified in ignoring him. You're a cranky God. We're not paying attention to you. Go to your time out in heaven, wherever you are, right? But if he's loving and if he's good and he's holy and he's just and he's Lord and creator, then all of a sudden the commands that we encounter would be actually designed for us, for our benefit and for the benefit of our communities. They'd be good things. And this is why it's important for John... Obeying God's commands, you'll notice he does not phrase in terms of compulsion. You must obey him. This is required of you, though that would be justified. What he says is, if you knew him, you'd obey. If you really knew him, you'd obey. Um, what came to mind for me as I was reflecting on that was, um, you know how there are some people who change dramatically after they get married? Right? Their behaviors change. And if, if you're a man, um, the term we often have for that in our culture, right, is henpecked. Um, And you just think, well, you know, um, there are other less savory terms, but, you know, his wife totally has him by the apron strings right now. But if you talk to most men who've changed for the better, who've become more of who you've always longed for them to be, what they'd say to you, I think, is not my wife is really demanding and controlling. What they'd say is, oh, if you only knew my wife like I knew her, if you could see her the way I see her, then you know the changes that I'm making are not what she requires of me because I can't think of any better way to express my love for somebody I care for so deeply as to begin to reshape my life around the expectations, hopes, and needs of that person, right? For those of you who are married now or have been married, you know exactly what the, that's like. When you're in love and when you truly know that person's needs, you aren't forced to do things. You delight in doing those things. Because it's an obedience born out of love. One of the best examples I've heard of this, or a great example, was um, Robert McQuilkin. Um, Robert McQuilkin um, was a well-known missionary. He was uh, the president of Columbia International University for many years. Um, and in about the mid-1940s, he noticed his wife, who had uh, her own teaching ministry, was vivacious, warm as a hostess, slowly began to um, fumble. They would have people over for dinner, and he'd be hosting people as the president, and they'd realized midway through the meal that she'd forgotten to cook the meat or to get the salad, and her speaking engagements started to go awry, and over time, what they realized was she had very early-onset Alzheimer's. And her um, need for care began to increase, so uh, Robert um, and the board of trustees actually hired a caregiver so that he could continue to work and somebody would be with her at home. And what he said is um, frequently she would just be distressed whenever he was not there, and it was a mile from the home to the university, and she would just find, they would find her walking to the university multiple times a day. At the end of the day, actually, he said at some point um, I would help her take off her shoes, and I'd see that her feet were bloody, but she had just kept walking to the university trying to find him. Um, right, and the doctor said, wow, that's really love, because even as she's, her mind is getting cloudier, all she wants to do is be with you. And it came to a point, he said, where it was clear the caregiver could not provide what she needed, and I could not provide what I needed to do for my job. And so, um, kind of at the height of his presidency, he was only, I think, in his mid-50s at this point, he resigned as president. And he said, you know, when the time came, he wrote uh, for Christianity Day, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part? it was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned, however. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And, as a, and such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. And so he wrote that in 1994. So obviously he's a little older than in his mid-50s. She passed away at 2003, so for 20 years. He was her sole caregiver, right? Um, As she lost bodily functions, he writes later about, um, you know, having to clean up bathroom uh, mistakes and uh, accidents. Um, Within the last 10 years of her life, right, from – 93, 94, she slowly became less and less communicative. So the last five years of her life, she she spoke not a word to him. For 10 years, she didn't even recognize who he was. He was just this person taking care of her. And consistently throughout his writings and reflections on this, he said, you know, nobody made me do this. Nor did it feel like a burden. This is the woman I love. And even when she no longer knew who she was, I knew her. I saw all of who she was before we were married. I still delight in her now, even though everything I love about her, everything that you'd expect in a marriage, communication, care, mutuality, presence, are all gone. I love this woman. And somebody asked him um, about 15 years in, do you ever regret giving up the presidency? And he said, you know, for 15 years, I never had even thought about that. Because it was so clear this is what I should be doing. Because I know her. I love her. What else could I possibly do? And I think it's precisely that kind of a posture that John says we have toward God. If you knew him, if you loved him like you claim you do, then of course you would give yourself to him and do what he asks you to do. What he says then in verse 4, right, is because if you don't keep his commands, it's clear you don't really know him. Because If you don't keep his commands, then really what you're saying is, I don't believe he's really good. I don't believe his posture is one of love toward me. I don't believe he can really provide for me if I trust him. I don't believe he really designed me and therefore knows my needs and my hopes and my dreams and expectations. If you don't obey him, John says, then really don't claim to know him as you're lying if you say you do. Right? That's how stark it is. For John, if you knew him, you would do what he commands because he's that good. But if you don't do what he commands, if you don't actually obey him, then you probably don't really know him. There's some other image of a God out there in your mind that's blocking you from seeing the God that Scripture actually reveals. And we all know the difference, right? There are times that we obey. I'll again use marriage as an analogy where you obey not out of love, but out of compulsion. And there's an image of your spouse that's crept into your mind, right? They're demanding or cruel. They're controlling or compulsive. They're cranky or particularly needy. And when that happens, um, the relationship begins to break down and you cease to do the things that they need. Now, let me be clear. There are times when spouses are abusive. And that's a very different situation from what I'm talking about. I'm talking about generally healthy people in relationship. And the times that we struggle, I suspect, to do the things that our spouse asks, is because um, this image of our spouse has come into our minds. It's very different from the spouse that we love. And so it begins to break down. But if we knew them as good, as loving, as postured toward our benefit, we might act differently. I think of a student I met with... um, at a camp a few years ago. She was um, a student uh, involved with the Intervarsity Chapter at Columbia University. <clears throat> and during one of the breaks during the conference, she came up to me and said, could I talk to you? And I said, sure. So we went to um, the side of the dock over at Lake Champion, where I know some, or actually we were at another Young Life Camp, we at one of the docks there. And we sat down. She said, look, here's the issue. Um, the people in my fellowship have asked me to come talk to you because we've been having this long-running fight. You see, I'm dating this non-Christian guy. And the chapter really opposes that. And I wanted to ask you what I should do. I said, okay, well, tell me more. And she said, look, I know, I know, right? What I don't want to hear from you, she said, was he's going to drag me away from my faith. Because frankly, he is so supportive of my engagement with InterVarsity. He loves the fact that I am a student and I'm thinking about leadership. Um, he always creates time for me. It's never like come date me or go to the fellowship, make a choice. He's always like, great, let's organize our relationship around your leadership, your schedule as a Christian. So he's super supportive. He loves what I do. Okay. And she said, please do not tell me um, that he's going to drag me to sin because he is the most moral, upstanding person I've ever met. He respects my boundaries uh, and my needs. He's not asking me to do anything that I don't want to do. He encourages me to live out my beliefs. So I said, he sounds excellent. Right? And she goes, and, um, He's kind, he's gentle, he's respectful. Really, he is far better than any of the Christian men I know. And I looked at the guys of the chapter who were out there, and I was like, no, that's true. I mean, like, he sounds like a man. They're boys. Is he here this week? I would love to meet him. And she goes, no, he didn't come. I'm like, rats. You know, I'm like, he sounds fantastic. I would really enjoy meeting him. So she said, look, if all of that's true, why shouldn't I date him? Because these people are clearly undateable, the Christians that I know. Well, I had to tell her, you're right. I think the men in your chapter 10 years ago or so are undateable. Don't date them. They're boys. Wait for a man. I said, here's my concern for you, though. Would you date him if he said, I just want you for your body? And, of course, like any good woman, she's like, no. I am so much more than that. I said, I know. But you would never accept that, right? And she goes, no. And I said, would you accept him if he, if he said to you, you're so brilliant. I love you. I mean, your body, eh, but... Um, Your brain, amazing. And she goes, no, why would I settle for that? And I said, that's my concern for you in this relationship. What he seems to be saying to you is, I love your mind, I like your body, I enjoy your heart, but I don't really believe you have a soul. Why not wait for somebody who will love all of who you are, not just a part of who you are, right? He may encourage your church going, but he doesn't really believe it exists, And if you really are a Christian, you've oriented your entire life around God, and God's the most important thing in your life is what you've been telling me, he doesn't even believe that's true or real. So, I'm wondering, as wonderful as he is, and I really think he sounds great, do you believe that God could have somebody ahead for you who will love you for all of who you are, not just a part of who you are? This is my friend. You are worth delighting in, all of you, not just part of you. The challenge for her, right, was to ask the question, do I really believe God could have someone for me who will love me for all of who I am, my heart and my mind, my soul and my body? Or do I need to grasp for the things that I see right now because I can't actually trust him? And if you think about the ways that all of us are prone to sin, that's precisely the times we break God's commands, right? When we're not really sure he's good enough. Not really sure he will provide. Not really sure he's kind enough or loving enough to meet the actual needs that we have. But John says, look, if you just could see him, you'd obey him. He goes on to say in verse 5, this odd thing, um, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. What does that mean? I want to suggest it's, um, not only do we see God and then obey, right? But frankly, um, keeping God's commands completes our love for God. And here's what I think it means. Love can't be sustained if it's just a set of emotions. In fact, in every area of my life, I think in every area of our lives, um, passion is not enough. But in fact, our emotions tend to follow and are reinforced by our behaviors. So there was a study of a thousand Americans um, that was just done about nine or ten months ago. Some of you may have seen it. And what they found is the people with lasting, satisfied marriages say it's the repeated habitual small behaviors that keep their marriage healthy. So what they said was, it was something like saying, I love you 10 times a week that made the difference. That was the breaking point for people between people with happy marriages and unhappy marriages. It was just the repetition of, I love you. And what they said is, even if you don't feel it, say it. It was the common act of walking in the house and greeting the other spouse with an acknowledgement of who, uh, that they were there, and a kiss, right? So, because I don't know about you, but at this point, my wife and I, when I, if I'm home first, my wife comes in, we barely acknowledge each other has come in the door because we're so busy, like I'm busy if I'm home first, um, cooking, making sure the kids are working on homework. She walks in, and really what I'm looking for is, great, set the table, because we are behind by 10 minutes, and 10 minutes behind at 7 o'clock spells doom for us at 8.30, right? So we're, and what the study said was just, it's important that you stop, Welcome home. Smile. I'm glad you're here, quite apart from what I need you to do. right? And for her to walk in and acknowledge, I see you. You're not just somebody who is my stay-at-home spouse this evening, but you are my partner who I love, and I would have come home for you anyways. right? But it's those small kinds of things. Cuddling seven times a week evidently is part of this. I mean, there's this entire list that they found. But they said even if it's rote, even if you do it just out of discipline, the sheer habit of doing it creates the conditions in which love flourishes and continually reorients our behaviors and attention toward love. Um, because in the end, it's not enough. Passion won't sustain you over time. Right? It's the constant acts of kindness. And for those of us who've ever had marriages that are struggling, right, we all know what happens in the breakdown is we stop being kind to one another and then it becomes really hard to live with each other. And the, often the first step toward rekindling at least hope or love in marriage is the small acts of kindness and love being done even when you don't feel like it to communicate care and appreciation. Love is actually sustained and maintained and proven by her behaviors. So um, I'm a little bit of an outlier, but I remember I made a choice not to tell Jen, my wife, I love you until I was willing to propose to her. And we actually talked about this because, right, in common dating relationships, you would exchange an I love you well, it depends on who you are. Some of you very early, others of you midway through. Most people wouldn't wait till they got engaged, but I knew that I really didn't know if I loved her until I was willing to say, I'm willing to marry you. And that anything else would be like, I'm kind of mildly infatuated with you, right? I'm intrigued I'm uh, by you, I'm enthralled by you, but... Uh, I thought, the way, Jen, you will know I love you is when I'm willing to say I'm willing to live with you till death do us part, for better or worse, right? Rich or poor, in sickness or in health. Up until then, I'm not sure I really love you because I'm not willing to make a commitment to you. So I chose not to say it. And I suspect for my wife it was agonizing, but what I knew was, um, <laughs> because, you know, you kind of expect that from somebody you've been dating for a, a few years. Um, LAUGHTER But I knew that it meant nothing until I was willing to behave like it was true. And that's what it means that, John says, look, um, your love will be complete when you act on it. But up until then, it's just singing nice words. It's praying pleasant prayers. It's offering lip service to God without any of the proof for us that this is really true. Our love for God can't be sustained outside of our behaviors as well, right? I know when I'm most disobedient to God in a sustained way, I'm most apathetic toward him. There have been seasons in my life where I have been more focused on my sin than my holiness, and I can tell you I have no interest in reading scripture at those periods of my life because, frankly, I don't want to be convicted. Right? My prayer life shrivels up because I don't want to face him, and frankly, I don't care about him at that point. And I would never say it that way, right? In part because I'm a professional Christian. I'm always supposed to care. But, um, but it's true, right? When I'm engaged in sin, I actually avoid God. And you can only avoid him so long before you stop caring and you're sunk in apathy, right? And for so many of us, I suspect... Scripture seems unapproachable or dull, precisely because our hearts are turned away from Him. But if you, but you all know, right? When you're actually at a good place with God, you can't stop. You can't stop worshiping and praying and studying Scripture and being in community and delighting in it. I was just reading um, an email report from one of my colleagues, um, Jenna, who's planting an university chapter at Monmouth University and she said you know some people have asked me because she's been talking a lot about how she's deploying students in the mission they said how about bible study and worship and she said i am so not worth it worried about it she said um, on wednesday today i just talked to a student who said i am feeling closest to god when i'm spreading his word i've never done that until this year um, but i so want to read the bible more now because i'm doing things that involve God's mission than I have ever done before. Reading the word has led me to active response and mission, and when I debrief and see where God is at work, it seems to lead me right back into wanting to hear more from him because the more I hear from him, the more I want to do, and the more I want to do, the more I see him at work, and it makes me want to read the scriptures again, and there's this virtuous cycle, right? As our behaviors, as the things that we do reinforce the truth of who God is and what he says, it makes us want to know him more. Because we experience joy. John says, look, if you knew him, you'd keep his commands. And if you keep his commands, then your love is going to be complete. Because it won't just be this thing in your head or your mind, but your entire body is then offered up as an act of worship to God right? That's what obedience is. That's partially why we enjoy singing worship songs. It's not just the lyrics and it's not just the melody, right? Because there are a lot of other lyrics or melodies we can give ourselves to. But the act of singing for us in part attunes our entire body into an act of worship that matches what our mind is reading and our hearts are saying. So all of who we are gets united at once. And obedience, John says, look, allows our bodies to participate in what our heart and mind and soul are already saying. God is good. And that's why it's so satisfying. And then John makes a kind of 80-degree turn, and he goes, this is how you know you're in God, right? This is how you're going to have confidence. How do you know you know God, you obey? How do you know that you're in God, right? How that you're dwelling in Christ, you live like Jesus did. And to me, this changes everything. Because the goal isn't just obedience out of quaking fear that like a lightning strike will come if I don't do what God wants, right? It's like he's like, ha, I got you, and he zaps you. Um, and it's not like you do it because you must, because otherwise mm, he's going to be so frustrated at you, right? Or you get up to heaven, it'll be like, oh, I guess you too, Oh, right? It's not that at all. John doesn't, none of those are rationales for obedience in John's mind. He goes, look, do you want to know you're in, in God? Then be like Jesus, that's what the commands are really about. Um, in fact, you're being invited to behave like one of God's children. That's what commands are about. Because when you behave as God invites us to behave, you behave like one of his children, and that's confirmed, reaffirmed in your heart. The Holy Spirit testifies to that. One of the best stories, and I'm sure I've told it here before, but I'll tell again, um, is about a woman named Corey Tenboom, who those of us who are older would remember— um, Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch woman uh, who lived in the Netherlands during the Holocaust. And she and her family hid Jews in their house, um, were eventually taken by the Nazis, and put in concentration camps. I believe uh, at least her fa- maybe her father and her sister died there, but several people died of her family. But she um, survived. Uh, became well-known as a Christian speaker and writer. Her book is called The Hiding Place. Um, It became a movie. Again, this is a generational thing. Younger Christians um, that I work with have never heard of her. But she was quite famous in her days, right, in the 70s and 80s, spoke constantly. And one of the favorite things that she would do is she'd come up on stage, right, like she's kind of top-name Christian speaker, and she'd go, um, and people would be clapping while she goes, no, 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 before you clap for me, I want you to know who I am. And people would laugh, like, we know who you are. That's why we're here tonight. I mean, right, like, um, and she'd say, My name is Corey Ten Boom, and I'm a murderer. And people would be like, right, That's not the testimony I heard. Um, and she said, Because what God tells us in Scripture, right, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that when you hate someone, you are a murderer. And so I need to confess to you, I'm a murderer. And the story she told was this She said, um, You know, my family was caught up by the Nazis, um, my family members died, I nearly died. And frankly, um, I hated the Nazis. I hated the Germans. And God says, uh, when you hate, you're a murderer. And she said, um, and so after I escaped uh, Europe, uh, I vowed never to return. Right? I set up this ministry in the US. But um, a few years later, she said, I was invited to go back to speak to churches in Germany, which were struggling after the war, Right? struggling for faithful witness, struggling to know if there was forgiveness, struggling to know if there was hope. And though she did not want to do it, she felt very clearly God commanding her to go. So she flew to Germany uh, and was speaking on the topic of forgiveness, which the German church desperately needed to hear. And she said, as I was speaking on forgiveness at this one church, I looked out at the audience, and there I saw a man that I recognized immediately. She said, I would never forget his face. He was one of the guards at the concentration camps that I was in. She said, there was no way he'd recognize me. It was the last time he saw me. I was emaciated. I was naked. My hair had been shaven off. But every day I saw this man as I and the other women were led to the showers. Every day he would mock us and jeer at us um, because we were naked in front of him. And every day you never knew when you went to the showers if you would live or die. And he was there laughing at us. And she said, as I was preaching on forgiveness um, it was clear from the radiant look on his face, this man had become a Christian. And she said, I finished my talk shaken and went to the back of the church to shake people's hands as you do. And he, she said, of course, what happened was he, the man came up to me and stuck out his hand, clearly not knowing who I was, and said, Sister Corey, isn't it amazing how God forgives She said, I looked at that man's hand and I could not reach out my hand to him. She said, I saw in my mind's eye, my family die, right? I saw, I remembered, I was having flashbacks of being exposed and naked and not knowing whether I'd live or die. And there's this man, his face beaming, his hand extended, what would I do? And she she said, I prayed, but that was the only thing I knew what to do. And she said, I prayed, Lord, you know there is nothing in me which loves this man, and yet I know what you seem to be inviting me to do is to stretch out my hand to him. So would you help me? She said, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. She said, but I slowly began to extend my hand because I thought that's what God required. And she said, as soon as I clasped his hand, I felt like warm oil was being poured over me. And she said, I felt like I audibly heard the Lord say to me, well done, Corey. This is exactly how my children behave. When we obey... We're actually not following a series of rules or commandments, but we're living into the reality that we're God's children. And in fact, when we do that, whether in the dramatic end of a Corey ten Boom, right, meeting somebody who is partially responsible for the death of your family, or even something as small as waking up in the morning and choosing to greet people with grace rather than grumpiness, right? Whether it's trivial or gigantic, whether it's quotidian or really cosmic, what I believe to be absolutely true is when we do those things, what you hear for just a brief moment is, well done, that's exactly how I desire my children to behave, right? When we speak the name of Jesus at a workplace in ways that bless rather than um, burden, right? When you offer a small appropriate witness when given an opportunity rather than backing away. When you take a moral stand, Not to compromise on an ethical issue at work, but to take the painful choice to confront it. When you choose to sacrificially love your spouse or your children, even though emotionally there's nothing left in you that day, what we're doing, right, is we're pressing into actually being one of God's children. In fact, what we're being invited to do is to behave as God himself behaves, right, because what we have, is, in fact, a model for what it looks like to obey God's commands. We have Jesus. Now, it's easy to go, well, sure, if you're the sinless son of God, these commands aren't very difficult. But the beautiful thing, right, is that we believe not only was he fully God, but he was fully human, and that Jesus actually models for us. He's an icon, the image of what God is like. And when you look at Jesus, if you become more like Jesus and do the things that Jesus does, you're doing what the Father requires. Right, it's no longer about a long list of rules. This is how we differ from the ways that the Pharisees were interpreting the Old Testament. Right, there are 660 plus rules that you need to follow. 400,000, I don't know, um, ways to interpret those. But Jesus shrinks it down, and he says about his own ministry in John 5, um, verses 19 through 29, I'm listening to the Father's voice, and I'm doing what I see the Father doing. That's all I'm doing. And he says, you do that too. Listen for the Father's voice and do the things that you see the Father doing. Or Jesus reduces it all down even further. And He says, look, you want to know what the commands are about in response to a question? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give yourself to him and then love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you fulfill the law. And if you look at Jesus, that's precisely what he does, right? He loves God with all of who he is. And um, occasionally, it's painful and difficult, as you see in the run-up to Gethsemane and the cross. But what strikes me about Jesus as you watch watch him loving the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, is that while there may be agonizing moments, you never see grumpiness. But in fact, you see somebody who delights in children and laughs in their presence, right? Who um, is delighted to be alone with God and then be engaged in his mission, to have a deep sense of purpose and joy. A deep sense of clarity about what he's doing and who he's becoming, what he's about. What you don't see is somebody like, uh, he's just so demanding my father and staring up in the ceiling. But instead, you see somebody who lived with, it seemed, the utmost freedom and yet the utmost purpose, right? And when you see him loving people as he would, right, loving others as you love yourself, you see somebody whose gentleness, whose compassion, whose deep love for people transforms them. And you see him confronting the powers of evil that oppress them. Right? demanding that religious rules and political systems get changed over time so that the people who were being oppressed would be lifted up. In fact, if you follow Jesus' invitation to love God and to love the people around you, you satisfy the commands, and Jesus gives us a model of that. And I think it makes everything different, right? Right? Because the commands aren't there because God has this rule-bound way of wanting us to understand what he's doing. In fact, these commands are God's invitation to become more like him. And that's precisely why if you knew God, you'd obey his commands because you realize the commands were designed to shape us into people who look more like God, who look more like Jesus. And there'd be joy. So, brothers and sisters, here's the challenge. For most of you, I suspect, in this room, because most of you look pretty familiar over time, which is really a pleasure to me, um, you probably already know enough. You probably already know enough about God. And in fact, our knowledge about God so far outstrips our obedience. But I've actually known one or two people who were stuck in their relationship with God um, and told them, you know, how about you just stop reading scripture for a couple weeks and just do what you already know to be true. And let's not see if that doesn't jumpstart your relationship with God. And normally what they say, no, 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 I'd rather just read scripture and keep trying. And I'm like, no, no, see, that's the problem. (laughs) I'm convinced if at home you woke up each morning and said, Lord, what is your task for me right now? And you did it. Your passion for God would awaken. I think as you go to your workplaces or your schools or your neighborhoods and you ask, so Lord, what do you have for me right now? What am I supposed to do? And you just did it you'd regular hear his voice well done that's exactly how I want my children to behave as you thought about the way you prioritize time and money and friendships and relationship and you said lord what do you want me to do with this and you did it you'd hear his clap, right? You'd hear his, yes, that's exactly it. And what you begin to find is the more you do it, the more he'd speak. Because, right, who's going to keep telling you to do something when you clearly you're ignoring him? And the more he began to speak, the more you'd recognize him, and the more you'd recognize him, the deeper you'd know him, and the deeper you'd know him, the more you'd trust him, and the more you trust him, the greater joy you have. And actually all of that would then begin to prove, you really know your God. Because you can't know a God from a distance, abstractly, right? I can read biographies of people, but it's not quite like being in the same room with them. For those of you who do job interviews, I can read a lot of resumes and a lot of job applications, but until I sit down face-to-face with them, hear their story, and watch them in action for a while, I don't really know who they are. You can keep reading, you can keep praying, you can keep singing, but until you actually obey, you won't actually know him, because in the obedience becomes the interaction. In the obedience comes the completion of our love, where we say, not just my head and not just my heart, but all of who I am. And the remarkable thing is then we're transformed to look like Jesus. That's why when I'd meet these students at the beginning of the year, the challenging thing for me was always when they wouldn't go to church, when they wouldn't come to fellowship, when they'd stop going to Bible study, I knew we were in danger. I remember um, one student, um, she'd gone to the Urbana Student Missions Conference back in um, 1993. And so I was meeting with every student who went doing some follow-up. I said, you know, what did you hear from the Lord, and how can I help you do it? was the, the, you know, the one sentence I had at those meetings. And I remember she said, well, I was pretty clear what I heard from the Lord is I should read through Scripture. I'm like, excellent, because that's so easy to help with. Or I'm like, can I get you a one-year Bible? Can I get you a Bible reading plan? I love those kind of easy solutions. I was – because I had bigger problems. I was trying to deal with some of the other students who were like – I need to reorganize my life. But this one was simple. I'm like, great, what do you need? I'll get it for you next week. And she goes, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, what? She goes, I'm too lazy. She said, you know, um, I'm a student in college. So, you know, I I wake up at like 11 o'clock. I go to classes. I eat. I work out. I do my job. And then I go back to my room. And by the time I start my homework, it's like 10 or 11 o'clock. So I'm going to sleep at 3, which is why I'm waking up at 10. I mean, she goes, so there's just no time. And I said, so what you're telling me is you heard from God very clearly at Urbana that you should read scripture. She said, oh, yeah. And it's super clear that that's what he was saying. She goes, oh, yeah, no question. And you're not going to do it. She goes, no, I'm just too lazy. Like, I didn't know what to say to her. And you know me, right? When I have nothing to say, it's pretty (laughs) dramatic. I just said, okay, if you change your mind, let me know. And we left, and within uh, six months, she had dropped out of fellowship. Within a year, she no longer identified as a Christian. Um, within two years, right, it was in difficult circumstances emotionally. But it was all so clear. And it was all so easy. And it all ended up coming down to, so why didn't you do what you clearly knew God was asking you to do? So brothers and sisters, If you're stuck spiritually right now, let me invite you. What's the one small act of obedience that you could take today?
1: And I have no idea
0: what it's going to be, but what's the one small thing you could do? Because I think there's a virtuous cycle that begins, right? Um, If you're angry at God, what's the one small thing you could do in obedience to who he's revealed himself to be so that you can begin to jumpstart your spiritual life again? For those of you who are doing well with God, let me encourage you, continue. Because there's joy, as you know already, right? There's deep pleasure and hope. There's the deep um, satisfaction of knowing slowly, ever so slowly, I'm looking more like Jesus as I do the thing God invites me to do. And slowly as we do that, we know more about God. We love him more deeply. And when you look more like Jesus and know him and love him more, That's a worthwhile investment. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm grateful um, for this church because uh, over the years that I've known it, um, I've known CBC to be a place where, as a body, they're listening to you. As a community, they're constantly trying to obey you. They're reshaping who they are and what they do, how they follow you. Um, and how they're reaching out all in obedience to who you've revealed yourself to be. So I pray that this would be a church which more and more knows it's God, find its love for you complete, and looks more and more like Jesus, because this part of Upper Westchester desperately needs to see Jesus and desperately needs to know that there are people who know God. Would you do these things for your own name's sake? Amen.